Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Utah Film Pod. My name is Josh Terry. I will be your host. I am joined again by Mark LaRocco. Mark, welcome back to the Utah Film Pod after a month? Yes. About a month. Yeah, um, it's been a little over a month, which is probably our longest gap, our longest break. It, I think so. And what's funny about that is it feels like a long time, and yet a month goes by really fast. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It it kind of doesn't feel like it's been all that long. I know. I know. I haven't seen a ton of mo- uh, movies. There's maybe that's part of the reason we haven't had much to talk about. Well, and I haven't seen a ton of new movies. I'm looking on my list. I've seen a lot of movies, but no new movies other than one in the theater that, that I'll talk about. That is a good point. Yeah. Yes, I think I think that's a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. The new movies have not inspired me to go and stay caught up on everything that's coming down the road. We're still neck deep in a couple of strikes. The writer's strike, the actor's strike, still going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think after our last episode, Dune 2 was officially pushed back to next year, which was one of the last movies I was still excited to see in 2023. Um, so I don't think we've covered that little bit of news. Um, there are still a couple movies I'm looking forward to. I know that, uh, what's the name of the Scorsese one you're excited about? Um, I know Ki- you're really happy. Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. 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 So that's still, still I think out. a lot of the prestige ones are still going to come down, but it seems like a lot of the, you know, I think that the, the more blockbuster style mainstream movies, they're, they're strongly considering yeah. kicking them back and. The, the ones that they're banking on where they need stars to promote it to really make their money and the big studio ones, they're getting pushed back. Um, yeah. The ones that are either independent, like fully independent or foreign films or movies that really are just streaming movies that are only going to have a small theatrical life like Killers of the Flower Moon, they're staying, um, which yeah. is actually going to open up the Oscar race or I should say close the Oscar race maybe for um, to, to fewer movies, right? And it, and it gives a better mm-hmm. better odds to movies like Oppenheimer or Barbie or Maestro, supposedly the new Bradley Cooper one, or Killers of the Flower Moon, the new Fincher movie, The Killer. So th- I think we're going to see some Paw of those. Patrol. Yes, of course, Paw Patrol. And remember the crossover promotion with Saw, so Saw Patrol, um, <laughs> like they did with Barbenheimer. <laughs> Um, that's one uh, that we, I believe my oh wife dear. will be taking my four-year-old too, because he loves Paw Patrol and our older kids, thank goodness, don't care as much about it. So we'll be happy to save 15 or $20 and only take one kid. Yeah. There you um, go. maybe I'll, she'll take a couple, but that's coming in about two weeks, I think. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. There is some, there is some stuff coming up. Mm-hmm. There are, there are a few movies. Um, well, so one that's coming out right away that is not getting kicked back is the latest this is the latest Kenneth Branagh directed and acted interpretation slash adaptation of an Agatha Christie source Mm. so A Haunting in Venice uh, which is not the name of the book it was it was based on a Halloween party is what is the, the Agatha Christie book so this is the latest of the uh, Branagh plays her famous detective Poirot, um, 
and we've already seen there was murder on the orient express was his first one and then is it like a year or two ago maybe about a year and a half ago was uh death on the nile Mm -hmm. and so haunting in venice is the third what did you think did you see either of the first two i haven't i actually would like to see those they they look kind of fun i i've never seen any of those movies have you so so have you seen any of the i guess the original adaptations because i know that there was i think murder on the orient express had albert finney playing the detective mm. have you seen any of those I, that came out i have like 40 50 years ago now you haven't seen any of those i don't think i've seen any agatha christie agatha christie's um yeah i don't i don't believe yeah. so well these these newest ones i i've generally enjoyed i mean i didn't like murder on the orient express as much i it was pretty watchable i i remember just thinking that it wasn't as good as the the first adaptation, the one with Albert Finney. Uh, that's that's the one. I mean, you can kind of tell from the title. It's a murder mystery about a bunch of people who are traveling on a very luxurious train. Mm-hmm. And um, that one was a few. I think that one came out pre-pandemic. And then, like I said, Murder on the Nile or Death on the Nile was, I want to say it was the beginning of last year when it came out. And I like that one a little bit better, maybe partially because I wasn't familiar with the story. Mm-hmm. Because with Murder on the Orient Express, the new one, I, I didn't like how it seemed like they were turning it from a murder mystery into a little bit more of an action movie towards the end, mm-hmm. which seemed a little strange. Um, Death, on the, the Death on the Nile, kind of a similar type of thing. Um, group of people. There's there's definitely... Now, I, I am not hugely fluent in her stuff i'm trying to remember if i've actually read any of any agatha christie books but there does seem to be a formula where it's a large cast of characters get together and somebody dies and they have to figure out who did it yeah which i guess is pretty logical because if there's only like two people in the cast then it's pretty easy to figure out the murderer but um haunting in venice is following kind of the same formula uh something i i really like about it is that uh it gives a little bit of a supernatural twist to these these mysteries um the thing takes place the the story takes place in venice uh on halloween night this is sometime after world war ii and basically poirot is basically coaxed out of retirement um still played by kenneth Branagh. He's got a writer friend who's played by Tina Fey, and she talks him into going to this Halloween party where they wind up attending a seance where they're trying to con- uh, contact a girl who was murdered or who died in the house. And, of course, there's a dozen other people there who are all variously connected. And uh, one of them gets killed. And, of course, the rest of the movie is basically about them trying to figure out done it and so here again like i said it's kind of the it's kind of the formula yeah um but uh it's sort of a tried and true formula this bottle episode style where you know that one of the killers except in the really crazy twists is somebody that you've been introduced to at at the beginning of the movie and it has to be it's like self-contained right like Mm -hmm. it has to be yeah one of these eight or ten or twelve people or whoever um kind of like uh, the one I saw last year that I wrote about, see how they run. Um, all right. These are all, it's just 
you know, knives out. It's a pretty mm -hmm. common formula and it, and it can work. It can be really effective. And because what you do is you try to be the detective as well, right? The audience is also a detective yeah. in trying to yeah. figure it out. So, And I think that's, yeah, I think that's part of the draw is the idea that it's, it's engaging because you're trying to figure out the, you know, the plot and figure out the mystery. And, and that's where I see the difference between good mystery stories and movies and, and lesser examples. I remember now this, this might be a really strange example, but this, uh, this kind of reminds me, did you, did you ever read, did you ever get the magazine boys life when you were a kid? Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. So did you ever read the Encyclopedia Brown mysteries? That oh they yeah. Were running those? By Donald, yeah. Donald Sobel, Donald J. Sobel. Okay. I, I didn't remember the guy's yeah, name. Yeah. I've read tons of those books. Yeah. So, so they drove me nuts. It's usually some because, obscure little clue. Yeah. Well, either obscure or non-existent. Like it almost felt like they were just kind of pulling stuff mm -hmm. out that we weren't aware of. And so, well, how are we supposed to figure that out if we don't know about what's going on? And it kind of feels like that that's the mark of a good mystery is can they, can, can they put it in plain sight and make it available so that it is logical when it comes together instead of it feeling like more of a, yeah. you know, just, just kind of, Oh, well, I'm just going to dream this up at the last second. And Oh, by the way, this happens. And, and it feels very disingenuous and, and kind of, it feels like cheating. Well, you I have to walk a line, like. right? Cause you don't want to make it too obvious to wherever you can figure out the killer or some clue is just right out there. So you don't become yeah. engaged, but you also, you don't want to make it so convoluted that it just becomes, it just lacks credibility, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. And so I guess, I guess with that in mind, I felt like haunting in Venice did a pretty good job of, of doing its job. Um, I didn't feel like they were completely, you know, pulling things out of the wind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, I, I, I think, I mean, the easy way to put it is I would, I would say it's a good solid three stars out of four movie. Um, I, I mentioned before what was kind of fun about this one was that though it's still effectively grounded in reality, there's a supernatural aspect to this because uh, the, the home that they're, that this is taking place in is supposedly haunted because uh, not only, you know, I mentioned that the, the girl who had, who had died that they were doing the seance for, um, but previous to that, uh, I guess the home was some kind of a hospital for kids or something and some awful things happened there. And so the ghosts of the kids are supposed to still be around and, you know, it, there's, there's more kind of a supernatural element that plays out here and there that, uh, even, even Poirot has to kind of question himself about whether he's seeing things mm -hmm. and is, you know, he's, he's very, you know, very logical, very methodical, very, mm -hmm. you know, the, the best of detectives, but he's, his, uh, you know, his beliefs are being challenged. And so, uh, especially because kind of, I don't know, I mean, it's halfway through September, so I guess it's, it's logical to start, you know, getting into the spooky movie season. And, uh, so a lot of people might find this one to be kind of a, a fun way to, uh, get in the door there. It's, it definitely has its share of jump scares. And so I wouldn't call it the scariest movie out there or the most uh, brilliantly constructed horror movie or anything like that. But I don't know. Um, I would, I would generally recommend it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, 
these these Branow mysteries are not blowing my mind, but I'm generally enjoying them. So here's a question. Do you please did you get like did you predict the twist without giving anything away? Do you feel like it was a it was a shocker or a surprise or was it was it like did it make sense to you? Um, I would say that it was a surprise when the the big reveal, we'll just call it that. Okay. Um that was a surprise. I wouldn't call it a shock. Um, because I didn't find myself that invested in the story, mm-hmm. but I was interested enough to think, oh, I wonder how this is going to come out, where this is going, you know, especially, and I, I, cause I think a lot of the tension really is between, okay, is this just a, you know, real people, real grounded, you know, a real murder type of thing, or is there some kind of supernatural aspect at, at work here? And, and that really drives a lot of the tension in the story. Um, and so, you know, you really kind of feel like, like, come on, this is, this is Agatha Christie. This is, this is Poirot. Eventually this has to make sense, right? There has to be some kind of a logical outcome. And so, um, the outcome itself, like I said, I would say between the term surprise and shock, it's definitely more of a surprise than a shock. Mm. That's why, that's why I'd say three stars out of four. Okay. It isn't, it isn't a sixth sense level. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Well, I, I, going back to that Encyclopedia Brown thing you mentioned, I remember I had the same feeling where sometimes you read you read a story and there's a clue that like was just so deeply hidden or masked. You're like, okay, yeah, whatever. And I remember yeah. one time um, the, a, a girl, like a, a tear appears, a tear is at the corner of her eye as she's relaying something that happens and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end when Encyclopedia Brown solves the case, he knew that she was lying and she was the one who did it because the tear was at the corner of her eye, like the outside corner of her eye and the tear ducts are on the inside corner. So she like took an uh-huh. eye drop, you know, and put it oh, like okay. tear out there. And so that's how we were supposed to figure out that she was lying, you know? And I was like, wow, <laughs> who would find that? But yeah, sometimes uh, these movies, there you go. they, yeah, they go a little overboard with that, but. I, I would like to see those movies. I wonder if, it, I mean, is there any reason to watch them in order or do they not? No, they're all separate, no, right? There's, okay. Yeah, they're very, they're very separate. I don't think there's any carryover. The, the closest thing is that they seem to follow a trajectory of Poirot's career, um, where in the first two movies, he's still basically a fully employed detective. And in this one, he's supposed to be retired. It's post World War II, oh. and uh, and so, so this is him. Like they, and like I said, Tina Fey plays probably the, the the second most you know prominent character, and she plays this novelist that uh, is used. I think I think the idea is that her she took him as inspiration for a character in her novels. And that's what makes him famous because he's this famous detective, right? There are people who are lining up outside his door trying to get him to solve their cases. Mm -hmm. And I guess she is the, the cause of his renown in that sense. Okay. But there's also some tension because he doesn't want to do it anymore. And because it's, it's so taxing. So, so this is kind of him being drawn out of retirement one more time, you know, when he gets, and, and the thing is, I mean, he doesn't, he didn't agree to take the case. 
he was invited to this party and it turned out they were going to be doing a seance and uh, Michelle Yao plays the, uh, the psychic mm-hmm. who, who leads the seance. Uh, there's a few other people. I, I think those three are probably, Oh, Jamie Dorn Dornan. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's there. Um, I didn't recognize a lot of others. Uh, the woman who lives at the house, whose daughter was, had died is uh, Kelly Riley plays her. So there's a few, a few familiar, not quite as many. I mean, it seems like the previous movies have had more familiar actors, at least to my eye. Um, but I can't say that it really makes the movie better or worse. It's just what it is. And I don't know. It's, it was kind of interesting to see Tina Fey in that role because she really almost exclusively plays has, has been doing comedies right right can you think of her doing a lot of more kind of straight i don't know of any straight drama that i've ever seen her in i know she does roles that have a little of both but i don't i I don't think i've ever seen her in just a dramatic role yeah anyway um i mean it's it's definitely a pg-13 movie you know it's it's kind of got your it's not super violent and not super scary but it has more of a horror element than the other uh, previous Branagh adaptations, um, but you know, no real sexual content or anything like that. I don't know if there's even really a whole lot of profanity. Um, so he's he's pretty really, pretty safe PG thirteen, I'd say. He's done a lot of movies. You don't really think of him as a big time director, but I mean, it seems like he's directed maybe eight or ten movies, something like that. He did Belfast, which is one that I, it's on my list. That's right. Oh, um, you still haven't seen that? I haven't seen that one. I, I hear it's I, I'm still, I'm still a little bummed out that that one didn't get more recognition for its cinematography. I yeah. thought that was the most beautifully shot movie. Just, okay. just this rich black and white that was astounding to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, you got to see that one. Okay. Now, how about you tell us what you did see? Well, speaking of black and white, um, I saw Oppenheimer, which has some sections in black and white. So let me Uh give you the quick synopsis. This is about uh, American uh, scientist and that guy who's known as the father of the atomic bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is uh, sort of, he's already fairly famous uh, as a physicist. And then he is tasked with putting together a group of engineers and scientists to go to this place they kind of create in the desert of New Mexico called Los Alamos and um, invent the atomic bomb. I mean, that's really kind of the, the nutshell yeah. story of this. Um, it's, a, right. it's a biopic, and it's based on American Prometheus, which is a wonderful biography of, of his entire life. Um, and, you know, it's pared down into a three-hour version that's both somehow, like, grand and epic in scope full of tons of actors. I mean, I can't even like name a half of the famous actors in this movie, but also it's really subjective. I mean, he's in nearly every scene. Um, apparently the screen was written in first person, which is, which is quite rare. And I saw an interview with Matt Damon where he said he had never even seen that before. And so a lot of the scenes are, are close-ups of his face where you get just from his acting, what's really going on in, in him. And he's, he was kind of a tortured genius in some ways because um he he he's when he's called upon by his country to to help develop the bomb in order to defeat germany which 
you know, plot twist, by the time the bomb is done, Ger- <laughs> the war against Germany's over. <laughs> so then what, you know, what right, happens? Right. Um, and that's really what motivated him the most. But he also loves his country. One of the great lines in the movie, which is stolen directly, I mean, it's lifted directly from the pages of America Prometheus, is he says, uh, he says, damn it, I happen to love this country. And it's a really emotional scene because he's sort of being raked over the coals for certain things that are such as having associations with communists. Um, and uh, but then. So he, is it weird that Oppenheimer's played by a British actor? Well, I was just going to mention that a lot of the <laughs> Americans in this movie are played by Brit. In this movie, are played by Brits. Emily Blunt plays his wife, Kitty. Um, Gary Oldman plays President Truman. Kenneth Branagh's okay. in the movie. Um, he plays Niels Bohr. He plays like a German physicist, scientist. But okay. yeah, this is... And Christopher Nolan, who's kind of got connections with both America and, and England, he, um, you know, he cast this movie. But yeah, there's a lot of non-American actors and actresses. Well, in, and you uh, kind of lead into the, my other question about this, or just, I guess one of many questions, I guess, is that, uh, I mean, you, you say... It's, it's the story of how Oppenheimer prepared and, and, you know, the atomic bomb. Pretty straightforward idea, you know, a biopic about you, the guy, you who, think. the father of the atomic yeah. bomb. But this is Christopher Nolan. Right. And, and Christopher Nolan doesn't really do anything. I don't know. I mean, I guess you can kind of say the, the Batman movies are at least straightforward narratives. Yeah, they're, they're linear, I think, as, as much as any right? of his movies are. I mean, it's so funny how he has this obsession with time, and I, I like it. I usually enjoy yeah, so, it. Yeah. So, so um, how does so how does Nolan put his signature on this? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, and I should have known this because I've seen most of his movies. I think I've only missed maybe four, um, and he's been directing movies since the late '90s. But I, but this is yeah, it's not a conventional linear biopic. It's 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 really told in three parts. There's there's sort of the story proper, which is the 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 life of Oppenheimer from when he's a young uh, sort of student in in Europe uh, and then going through his life of becoming, you know, probably the most famous scientist in America for at least a short period of time. And then also there is a an inquiry that's being spearheaded by sort of the, the villain of the movie, who is a guy named mm-hmm. Louis Strauss, played by Robert Downey Jr. Um, and the inquiry is really as an attorney it's everything that due process is not you know like he's Mm. not given the exhibits ahead of time his own attorneys don't know what everybody else including the impaneled set of judges who are going to determine whether or not the whole purpose of the inquiry is whether his security clearance is going to be removed it's going to be taken away um which for him is a pretty big deal because of all the sacrifices he's made for, for the country and even well I don't want to spoil too much, but let me tell you the third part. So the, the newest section section of the movie, which is the only section in black and white, is a hearing of where Louis Strauss is supposed to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate to be the Secretary of Commerce, the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. And you would okay. think, well, how does this really tie into a biopic about Oppenheimer? And, and it makes sense because of some of the things that come back to, to bite Strauss in that hearing that are related to the earlier sets of the stories. Mm. And so, yeah, there's sort of, I, I would say there's three main storytelling devices or three main frames in the story. Um, and it is it is nonlinear because it jumps back and forth. I mean, it does it the whole movie. 
and and it is nice that one of them's in black and white to help you kind of keep oriented where you're at. But I, I, I guess my only complaint about the movie is, and I and I read the book, and it was still a, a little bit dense. I mean, the number of characters in it that you kind of have to keep track of. You're like, wait, is this guy work for the military or is this a scientist? Is this somebody I have to care about for you know more than this scene? I mean, there there's just quite a bit. Uh, Josh Hartnett is in it. Kenneth Branagh, as I said, um, Alden Ehrenreich is great. He's the guy that, if you recall, played Solo, Han Solo and Solo. And he kind of becomes our audience surrogate. He's a Senate aide to Strauss who's helping kind of shepherd him through the hearing, you know, the Senate hearing. And and then he he questions him and Strauss sort of tells his story to him. Um, And and so, anyway. Well, and then Florence... Florence Pugh yeah, she, is she plays Jean uh, Tatlock, who is somebody with whom Oppenheimer has an affair, um, and uh, she is and apparently she has very few scenes in the movie. In fact, I hardly saw them because I used I'm I'm gonna say an app here. It's called RunP <laughs> RunP.com because um, there were a couple of scenes I just didn't want to see that were the basically the whole reason why this movie's rated R and. It tells you exactly when a scene is going to happen and what happens in the scene. So I just went out and got some popcorn, got a drink, went to the bathroom. Because apparently they show quite a bit of of this affair Mm. that Oppenheimer and Gene Tatlock, played by Florence Pugh, have. Um, So, you know, there's, I don't know if you've heard about the Trinity sequence. It's where they test the bomb before they they are going to use it. And this is such an amazing scene. I mean, you feel like Christopher Nolan has somehow filmed an actual nuclear bomb. Wow. Um, I, it's so good with, with the sound effects and how, how far away everybody has to be. And um, there's some parts of the movie where the sound is just almost overwhelming, like overpowering. Um, and one of those is that, is that Trinity sequence. Uh, so you liked it? I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, I I mean, I really don't have complaints about it other than I, I would I would like to see it again and be able to be, and I was stupid because I was a little bit late to it. I mistimed when, I thought it started at 8.30 and it started at 8. And I went and met my brother-in-law oh, wow. there in, uh, in Lehigh. I saw it at Thanksgiving. So, so you missed the first five minutes of the movie. Well, actually, it's funny you say that because I did. I, I mean, I drove as fast as I could to get there. There was enough previews, which I knew there would be, like 15, 20 minutes of previews. I was gonna say and then I got the there, gym. and I, I leaned, and he whispered to me what happened. And, and it was it was about the sixth minute of the movie I got in there. So it's a three-hour <laughs> movie, so I really didn't feel like I missed much. Um, I guess I missed another five or six minutes, too, using that app. Um, but I, And it helped that I had read it. It really did, because... Um, which maybe that took a little of the drama out of it. We, I think we've mm. talked a little bit about that. I've been in the habit lately of reading a lot of these books that get made in the movies. And so it so made... So did you just read it recently? Yeah, I read it this year. I finished okay. it about two months ago. Oh. Um, so, um, yeah, I mostly liked it. I mean, I, I Matt Damon, he comes on. He plays General Groves, who is a general that is... Uh, he's the one who recruits Oppenheimer to lead the Los Alamos project. And um, he is like Matt Damon. 
like it's just hard to see him as not Matt Damon in that scene and it kind of oh, yeah. it sort of takes you out of the movie for a minute I guess you know he's supposed to have a few funny lines and he's he's sort of this authority figure but he's also kind of on Oppenheimer's side and he's he's proud of his success since he's the one who you know hired him for this big job that sort yeah. of is the central story of the movie um but yeah it's could have been someone else probably would have been just as fine um killian murphy is probably going to win the oscar or he's for sure going to be nominated for best actor um and uh you know i i don't know who else is out there that's that's going to be big but like maybe dicaprio or de niro from killers of the flower moon or bradley cooper from maestro but i i was pretty impressed with his performance because i don't think i've ever really seen a lead performance out of him it seems like he always does supporting roles um like he's scarecrow in the the nolan batman movies and uh yeah right well he was in 28 days later he was that oh was yeah my... he was the main guy in that yeah. wasn't he uh-huh yeah oh yeah no he's he's Forgot been in, about he's that been in, he's been in a few yeah, i guess he's been around for 20 years now. i guess i'm thinking mainly of nolan because like he's a he's a supporting part in inception for example yeah that's uh, right well he's the he's the mark he's the target yeah right? he's the guy who's they're trying to incept Incept. that's right he's the son of the uh he's the ceo or something of that <laughs> corporation yeah he's the right. well so okay so so big question then how does Oppenheimer stack up next to the other Nolan movies? Is this is this going to be one of your favorite Nolan movies? Is it kind of in the middle, or is it does it, does um, it rank? I would say it's think? it's definitely one of the favorites. It's definitely in the top half. I, I guess I'd have to go through and rank them, which I haven't done yet, mm-hmm. where I've included this movie. But it's it's for sure got to be in the top, probably the top third of the Nolan. Give movies. me give me two Nolan movies you like better than this one, and two Nolan movies that you think. Oppenheimer is okay. Well, Tenet is much lower. I'll tell you that right now. Um, you know, like it's not, uh, yeah, that one's one that I wasn't a huge fan of. Um, and then I would probably say, well, I mean, it's hard. I, I do really love like Interstellar quite a bit. I love The Dark Knight, those are probably two of my top two or three yeah. Nolan movies. So I would say I like those more than this, but it's okay. hard for me to put any of the other ones above this. Um, really? Yeah. I It's not even Inception? Probably not, no. Um, although it, I do love Inception, but I think... Yeah. And, and maybe it's just that this was an even more uh, emotionally affecting movie for me than Inception. Okay. Inception was more just cool cool effects right. special effects and kind of interesting and um i i mean because well, what else what else are we thinking here because we got we got dark knight rises the prestige was a lot begins. of fun yeah you got batman begins yeah. and dark knight rises which for me are good they're good movies prestige really for complained. me has always been one that i i didn't dislike it but i've never really thought of it as oh that was an awesome movie yeah it, it was it always kind of falls into the category of Oh yeah, that's another one that Christopher Nolan did. It I almost yeah. to me it always feels like an afterthought. I like it quite a bit, but I I spent so many years since I've seen it. I would like to reappraise it. Um Dunkirk is another one that's yeah, quite good. I, I did I just recently um, rewatched that one and that one I really enjoy that one quite a bit. I think we're just lucky that we are in the Nolan time because he really other than Tenet, he's really never made anything I didn't like. Yeah. I mean, and I and I have I missed a few, so um, 
but yeah, I it's been these are just really good movies. They're all they're all events. I mean, they are. And I know it's only every 3 years or so. It's not like he's putting them out every year, but it's 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 a good one to go see in a theater and I felt the same way about Dunkirk, you know. Yeah. Um yeah. I yeah, it's it's funny though like cuz now now you're going to wonder every time he comes out with a movie like, "Okay, how is he going to mess with time? You know, what's he going to do that's right. a little different or something's going to run backwards well, or you know, I you mean know. it's a, it's a little like Shyamalan where you get a reputation for yeah. kind of leaning into a very particular signature move and you know, people expect that. Yeah. And with Shyamalan it was the well there's got to be some big twist at the end because his first what four movies had at least four or five and then it kind of kind of tailed off as his movies got a lot worse. Well, but with yeah. Nolan, you know, I mean, I I think I want to say he did something before Memento, but wasn't Memento kind of his breakout movie? Well, yeah, where... he did a movie called Following, which is a sort of a stalker movie in black and white about a guy that goes yeah. into people's houses and follows them, and then he like takes things. And I I don't know, I haven't. But seen it. but Memento is the first one that people kind of yeah knew yeah right, and the one that he tells backwards, mm-hmm. and so I I think that between that and some of the other stuff he does, he, he definitely, like I said, I mean, that's, I, I think he's, he's on a short list for me of directors who really put their signature stamps on their movies. Mm-hmm. Like you can kind of tell it's them. It's not, it's not going to be one of those situations where you get to the end of the movie and suddenly the name pops up and you go, Oh wow. I didn't realize so-and-so. Yeah. Did it. Yeah. He's you not, know? he's not it's, like it's, a mercenary. He's not a guy that just, sort of plug and play, um, yeah. you know, yeah. or, or, or one where like the producer is the real director. Some movies it's like the producer and the studio are the ones really, they just right. need a name there to be the director, but kind of shepherd everybody and to get to their places and tell the story. Like Nolan Even is in control. Even if it's Alan Smithy. Yeah, Alan Smithy project, right? <laughs> yeah, no, he's in control. He writes and directs. And I, I, I have a feeling now that he can kind of controls the whole thing from... He's getting to that status where I think Clint Eastwood got to, well, until right. a couple of years ago, to where I think he's it's probably done. After Juror Number Two, I don't think he's ever going to be allowed to make another movie. But he, like, I think that he is, or Scorsese or Spielberg. Yeah. I think Nolan is is getting into that category. So yeah, yeah, I, I I liked it. And the other thing I like about the movie too is it's not a hero worship bi- biography mm. of Oppenheimer. Okay. I mean, even though it's the subjective, it's interesting. Like, it really shows his flaws. Like, a little bit cocky. I mean, the marital infidelities. Um, even his serious failings as a father. Which I was kind of worried almost how they would depict that. Because he... That's one of the things he's least interested in. Is being a father and raising his own kids. Um, and so, you know, you, you know he's just... It's kind of a warts and all picture, yeah. I guess. Um, but you also feel for him. I mean, you, there, there's a certain amount of empathy that I think the audience that, that Nolan rings out of the audience through the way that the story is told. Um, and you remember in Inception, that scene where DiCaprio or Cobb, I guess, whatever his name is, has, he comes home and he's trying to see the faces of his children, but you never see their faces. It's like, you know, you, you, they're about to turn around, yeah. but you can't see them. And then, and then it, it changes, and 
there's a scene kind of like that in this where there's a key conversation that sort of gets replayed and showed between him and Einstein, between Oppenheimer and Einstein, and how what is what what did it really mean? What was talked about there? And it, that's what reminded me of that part. Of oh, so so do they do they handle Einstein like they handled Michael Jordan in Air, where you only kind of see him from behind, and it's like this, this no. big big gray shock of hair. <laughs> that would have been funny. Huh? You can't. You could you just kind of look it over his shoulder. You could just but tell it's him. Or you hear this like thick German accent and like talk about <laughs> relativity. No, it he's in it, but he's not a big part of it. And that's the thing is like. I think if you if you sit down and watch this movie, I definitely want to see it with subtitles. Of course, I said the same thing about Tenet, and I haven't seen it since 2020, which is fine with me. But like, <laughs> you want to see it with subtitles and just be in a place where you could focus and like not be distracted, because some of these character actors just kind of come and go, but they do yeah. have a part. They they do have mm. something to do that kind of adds to the movie, and 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 Einstein's part is that way too, even though he wasn't like a huge influence for example on oppenheimer's life he was a little bit but not like yeah like you know so you're so you're recommending oppenheimer is what you're saying oh yeah for me it's yeah, it's absolutely. a five-star movie i mean it's yeah. it's like one of those rare kind of you know i maybe not flawless but pretty dang close movies cool so yeah but yeah i would recommend nice. if you don't want to see the the scenes the you know the nude scenes in it sex scenes use that app and it worked, it worked, you know, like yeah. there's ways you can get around it. If you, if you do want to, I mean, there's a few, few F bombs, but not a ton. I didn't feel like it was excessive. Um, yeah. but, and then I guess the thematic material, I mean, it's, it is about the development of, of a bomb that kills hundreds of thousands of people. And that may be too much for some people anyway, because of it's, it's quite devastating. Well, yeah. I mean, the bomb, obviously, but the movie is, too. So, uh, yeah. Well, I I also have a movie that I think I pretty much would describe as perfect that uh, that I'd like to talk about because uh, at the was it end of last month, um, got together with a couple friends and went to see the 50th anniversary presentation of American Graffiti which if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you might remember is one of my top three movies, the ones that I use for our little, our little conversation. Uh, so this is one I'm very, very well acquainted with. Have you seen American Graffiti? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yep. Um, it did not disappoint at all. Um, I, I wouldn't say that seeing it in the theater was quite to the same magnitude as seeing E.T. last year because it wasn't like a, you know, Dolby surround sound IMAX type thing. Um, American Graffiti is a movie that you can appreciate at home just as well. Uh, but it was awesome. It is such a incredible movie. And, you know, seeing it, seeing it in the theater, I think gave me, and I don't, I don't want to be too negative here, but seeing American Graffiti in the theater in the same year where I've been seeing a lot of other stuff that has really just kind of felt like a letdown, it just really kind of reinforces how much better good movies are than what we've been getting throughout a lot of 2023. Um, 
but I don't want to just, I mean, I, I would rather just rather just prop up American graffiti. It's, uh, I mean, if, if you don't know already, it's, it's the story of the last night of summer, 1962, you've got four friends, uh, in kind of various, you know, dealing with various challenges and questions in life. And, uh, they're all, you know, 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there. And, uh, they're out on the town. It's a kind of central California Modesto areas where it was shot. And so it's just kind of the hijinks of a single night out on the town and interacting with all kinds of other, other kids and gang members and cops. And, and, you know, the whole thing ends with a big drag race and uh, just a, it's, it's great fun. And there's a lot of wonderful nostalgia to it. It's got an incredible soundtrack um, but it really packs an emotional punch and it has really, really well-drawn characters. And, you know, one of the things that stood out to me the most about, about seeing it was that, you know, you could, you could almost say that the, the movie is a collection of vignettes where, you know, you're following these four characters as they kind of split up and go their separate ways over the course of the evening. And so you're, you're kind of, toggling back and forth between them and where they where they're at in their different adventures and each scene each beat just hits it's it's memorable it's fun it's well done it's it's funny and i just really just kind of sat back and thought you know i mean i I know this movie backwards and forwards but sitting here watching it in the theater is just a reminder of how well put together this is uh directed by john uh, directed by george lucas um he was a co-writer on it. Uh, I think, uh, oh, I wish I could. Gloria Katz and Willard, Willard Hayek, I think, are the other two co-screenwriters. And uh, awesome job. Um, Richard Dreyfuss is in it. Uh, Charlie Martin Smith is in it. You might recognize his bit role in lots of things. Cindy Williams, Ron Howard, all kinds of people. Harrison Ford as well. So that, I think, was my highlight of the summer honestly, hmm. as far as movies go. I mean, I, I really love Mission Impossible. Um, I thought that the Guardians of the Galaxy, the third, you know, volume three was pretty good. But man, just w- a perfect way to cap off the summer by going to see American Graffiti on the big screen. That's um, cool. Yeah, that, that was that was that was cool. That makes me want to make more of an effort to, to watch out for those those classics that have re-releases, you know. Well, and there there are a few of them. Yeah. Um, I know that the Jurassic Park has been out. I'm not sure if it's still in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a few days since I since I was over there, but it's the 30th anniversary for Jurassic Park. It was the 50th anniversary for American Graffiti. Uh, I did see that I believe sometime next month in October, uh, they're going to also do a 30th anniversary uh, showing for Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh. Which should be a lot of fun, yeah. You know, be, that, that, one. that would be Go a ahead. good one because that's a movie I did not appreciate in its time, and even the first time really? I saw it, which was a few years ago, I didn't. I just the songs just annoyed me, and then the more that <laughs> my kids watched it, the more I watched it, the more it grew on me. The more I liked really? it, yeah. So I would, I'd see that in the theater. Same with the Fugitive. We're at the thirty-year anniversary of the Fugitive too. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good movie. That's a good movie. I rewatched that. Just on, you know, just at home, probably earlier this summer. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I, I have to say though, what always cracks me up, this is this is not my sole takeaway from the fugitive, but it's something that always just kind of makes me smile whenever I think of it. So you know how at the beginning of the movie, well there's the there's the train wreck, right? And so it's you know, Dr. Richard Kimball played by Harrison Ford and he gets, you know, mm-hmm. wrongly accused of killing his wife and yeah. so he has to escape. Um so they're they're like the train the train crash and the initial pursuit. And then when he jumps off the dam, it's like this mountainous area that's supposed to be Illinois. Yeah. I've, I've read and that too. If yeah. you have ever been to Illinois, it's not, <laughs> you will not see like, it is, it's, I don't know. It's just way too funny. Yeah. That they kind of try to pass it off that way. Cause it's like, yeah. Cause well, the weird thing about it is there are scenes that are very Chicago, right? That are scenes oh, that are like yeah, really, yeah. really well that are shot there, but then you have these these country scenes or these mountain scenes that are clearly in another state. Um, but yeah, yeah, that train I mean, crash even, is even the, pretty oh, amazing, yeah. though. Well, the it's train real. crash is real. Yeah, yeah, it cost them like a million dollars or something, and they had to get it just right to do that scene. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, that was a good one. That was yeah. a good one. So yeah, so we'll have to keep an eye out. I did see. I think this is a Megaplex promotion I saw come down the line where I think they're going to be doing like a 10, 10 movies for $10, the thing that stretches over a couple months into, uh, I think it's October, November, December, something like that. And uh, so a bunch of, bunch of classic movies that you can get, you kind of see as a package. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean... You'll have to let me know what's there because there's a few I may, I may want to check out. Um, well... I mean, it seems it seems like just just for my you know non researched observation, it seemed like once the pandemic kicked in, a lot of theaters started doing kind of like these throwback screenings oh, just yeah. as a way to kind of make some give money. people a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like it's continued to a degree. You know, certainly right now, like I said, I mean, there's there's several movies right now that they're doing it with. Um, I'd like to think it would continue. I mean, I don't think it's going to be the kind of thing that will sustain the theaters on their own if, like we say, if these strikes keep going. Um, but at the very least, I mean, honestly, I, I was really debating going to see Jurassic Park again because I remember, I remember reviewing that one several years ago. Um, where they were they were re-releasing it in 3D, and so we went and did a press screening at the at the IMAX at Jordan Commons, and I remember just kind of being stunned mm-hmm. because I mean I was very familiar with the movie I've seen it several times saw it several times when it came out and I've seen it you know a few times since then, um, but hadn't seen it in IMAX and certainly in a theater for a very very long time. And you just kind of stagger out of that theater thinking, I have forgotten how good this movie was. Yeah. And that's, you know, because we, we give our comments. If you if you go to the, if you attend a kind of like a pre-screening or a press screening, promotional screening, uh, usually there'll be somebody out there, outside who'll want to get a comment because they're trying to get feedback. And that was exactly what I said was that I had forgotten how good this movie was. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that really was... You know, we, we talk about the difference between movies that you can just kind of enjoy at home and those that you really need to see the spectacle. And this is this is what theaters are for. Yeah, exactly. And and oh wow, Jurassic that, Park was one yeah, of those. Yeah, I mean that's one of my 
you're preaching to the choir. That's one of my top five of all time. I think that was one of my three that I gave when I first came on the podcast. And yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. we 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 sh I showed my kids that uh, earlier this year, and that was a that was a highlight. I think they all enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, so, so you know, so you want to know one of my regrets then? Because I this this is actually kind of leading into something else that I've been fixating on lately. So I'm really, really glad that I got, I saw, I rewatched Jurassic Park. Really, really grateful that I resaw E.T. last year. Mm -hmm. That one, I might have had more fun with that than even American Graffiti this yeah. year. Um, but the one I'm probably going to be kicking myself over for quite some time. Um, when I was in London four years ago, I had the opportunity and passed, sadly, to see Apocalypse Now on IMAX. Oh. At, uh, I think it was at Leicester Square. There was a big IMAX theater there. And I had gotten, I had gotten one of these, these little, I don't know, people are probably familiar with these. It's when you go to a city and oh, you spend 200 bucks and they give you like this package that has, oh, you can go do this and you can ride this ride and you can go visit this and you go see this museum. And so it's just kind of like, a really it's like the london pass i think is what it was called and it included a, a free movie ticket and i think i could have used it at that theater but i wound up going to a different one and lately this is this is why this is kind of springing to mind lately i'm not even sure exactly how it happened but I, i've gone down a youtube rabbit hole of apocalypse now analysis videos oh and there's a lot of them out there. I mean, I guess there's really yeah. no shock. I mean, it's it's perfect, you know, the perfect kind of movie for that kind of thing. Um, but it reminded me that, yeah, because they, I think what had happened was they did the Redux version in about 2001 where they, where Francis Ford Coppola put about 45 minutes of extra footage in. And then just about four or five years ago, they did a follow-up director's cut where he chopped out a little bit more and, and this is supposed to be the definitive version and you know, whichever version it was, I had never seen it in the theater and you know, that's, that's another movie that I can only imagine what that would be like yeah. in, in a theater experience because it is such a, such a visual movie, mm -hmm. you know, and su such an experience. I think certain you know. scenes alone, just seeing like, <clears throat> The helicopters strafing uh, that village while Wagner's uh, Ride of the Valkyries right, is playing right. would be worth the price of admission, especially if it's free. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I remember, you know, because as you can imagine, a lot of the videos really kind of focus in on that, uh, uh, you know, that, that particular sequence with Robert Duvall. And, it, you know, re-watching re that scene. Oh, I love, I love the smell like, of napalm in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Well, because there's that, which is the, I mean, that's kind of the central, like if anybody knows anything about apocalypse now, they probably know that line. Right. Yeah. But what's so funny is, is well, and, and like darkly comic mm -hmm. is before and after that, he's obsessed with finding good surfing waves. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, that. because he, 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 it's like, he's treating the war as his own kind of playtime and and just watching that sequence i more than anywhere else and and 
including several other movies, I get a real catch 22 vibe mm-hmm. where it's just trying to depict kind of the craziness and the madness of, you know, of war, um, of, of war in general. And yeah, because it is, it is set in Vietnam, but I, it's, it's, I don't even really definitively think of it as a Vietnam movie. It, it seems like it's covering more than that. And it's not, it's not limited to just, you know, cause you compare it to something like platoon or, or uh, 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 full metal jacket or, you know, or, or something like Saving Private Ryan, which is very explicitly set like this is supposed to be a World War II movie. Mm-hmm. Apocalypse Now doesn't seem to be contained in that same way. But anyway. Yeah, it could have been. I mean, because it's really Heart of Darkness, right? The Joseph Conrad novel. Right. So and they could have set what? it in any war or, or any. Yeah. It didn't have to be like the Vietnam War. I mean, it's and, a perfect fit. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that it would have worked as well elsewhere, mm-hmm. but maybe the idea that this is a story that originated outside of the Vietnam war is part of the reason why it doesn't seem like it's completely dependent on the Vietnam war as a, you know, for its narrative. But yeah, well, yeah, I, so I'm going to regret, I'm going to regret missing that one. So I, I did catch up on a few old movies um, hey. over the past month. I'll tell you just a couple of them really quick before we're done. So yeah. alien speaking of apocalypse. Now, oh, alien came you texted out the same me about year. that. Yeah, that was yes. the same year. And I, I it's another one that would kind of shocked me that I hadn't seen before. Kind of like The Lost World, Jurassic Park 2. Um, okay. Which I guess because it basically came out on my mission, I didn't see that one. And then I had never seen Alien. And, and my wife and I watched it, and it was so good. I mean, yeah. it, like, just really riveting and scary and, of course, kind of gross, you know. <laughs> um, uh, I had seen, I guess, one scene of it before, which is also parodied in Spaceballs by Mel Brooks. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, quite a movie. So I want to see Aliens. So is that kind of like me seeing, or is that kind of like me hearing the Weird Al song Eat It before I heard Michael Jackson's Eat It? <laughs> yeah, I, it kind of is. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, and, of course, I think we know from the new Weird Al movie that Michael Jackson stole. Uh, di- di- didn't they say that he stole <laughs> right. <eat> it? From... <laughs> um, but yeah, I um, I also saw we watched Rear Window, so we're starting to work okay. our way through Hitchcock. Okay, it's a great, great movie. And then I had never seen Heat before. That was the oh, one that, I, that is a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, and then yeah. Um, a western called The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, which is mentioned I don't in think I've Fablemans. Seen that one. It's a John Ford movie. It's kind of his last Western, John Ford's okay. from 62. And it has John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart in it. Uh, and it's it's really good. Like, I mean, it's kind of a cool... Because you know how in Westerns, a, a pretty like typical plot is that you have a town full of citizens who are being terrorized by outlaws. And then mm-hmm. someone either has to come in, some outsider has to come in and save them, or somebody in the town has to find his courage and help defeat the outlaws well in this movie um there's this clash of sort of these old west values of rough justice of like do you just shoot someone do you kill someone do you hunt them down or is there a more lawful can you actually use the law to to handle the situation and like arrest somebody and put them in jail and try them and and because jimmy stewart comes into town and is is beaten up and attacked basically by this Liberty Valance, this known outlaw that just basically gets away with whatever he wants. And Jimmy Stewart's a new, a fresh lawyer who um, 
you know, ends up kind of living in the town, befriending people there, and he wants to use the right means. You know, he wants to use the, the American system of justice and not the Old West system to try to bring down Liberty Valance. And, you know, things go haywire, and it's it has some cool kind of unpredictability about it. Um, but a lot of it is about how, like, democracy is formed. A lot of it's about freedom of the press and citizen, like, town halls and... Um, it was good. I, I was surprised. It's a movie I'd really hadn't heard of before other than in the Fablemans. And, okay. Um, yeah. So kind of caught well, up with some older ones. Showed the kids the Karate Kid, things like that. Oh, we, good. Super 8. Um, so have we, have we done an episode that is focused on Westerns yet? Or have we just kind of talked about them in passing? Like no, this? but that's a good one. I don't think we have. We ought to do that. I, I'd like to do that. That would be fun, you know, and maybe uh, as a prep, because I haven't seen a lot of old westerns, a lot of the famous ones like The Searchers, and which is another John Ford, John Wayne collaboration. I, I don't, but I've seen enough of the newer ones. I could talk about them and we, we could do that. But yeah, that's one we should yeah. put on the docket. Well, and then, and then final question. You've seen, now you have now seen Alien. Did you see, have you already seen Aliens? Mm. Then maybe, maybe I should come on down to Casa La Rocco. Mm-hmm. And watch and, Aliens. And uh, we should, we should make this like our equivalent of like Zombie Fest 2023 or something. Oh, that something would be for Halloween Because, because I, I would love to see your reaction to Aliens because it is, I would say it is as good a movie as Alien but totally different. Okay. And I'll just leave it at that. All right. Yeah. Cool. Well, All right. I, so that gives there, us some stuff to look forward to. I hope it's as good because there's an, a, a wonderful twist in, in Alien. I'm not talking about the stomach bursting scene or whatever. Mm, yeah, right. scene. There's a really good twist in that that I did not see coming. I knew there was something right. a little odd about one of the characters, but then when the twist happens, I was just, we were like just open mouth staring at the screen what just happened <laughs> so i i thought it was great but yeah, yeah. it's a good one it's a yeah. really good one yep yeah well nice okay so after a month off that has been the utah film pod thank you so much for joining us be sure to uh, leave us a like a follow whatever uh whatever options you have for showing your support and getting on board and we will look forward to bringing you more information more stuff i know that Probably going to see the creator over the next week or two. Probably talk about that one in the next episode. Plus, uh, who knows? Maybe we'll spend some time talking about some westerns. In the meantime, take care of yourselves, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>